0: Chump of the Decade. That is the title awarded to me after a little trick I pulled with our youth group from Arizona. We had pulled an all nighter drive from Phoenix to Magic Mountain just north of Los Angeles. One of our students developed motion sickness after one too many roller coaster rides, so we grabbed some ice cream and sat for a while, allowing his head to heal from the repeated jarring it had been dealt. Watching him improve, the thought came to me about where some of the other kids might be. I knew some were waiting in line for Goliath, that iconic roller coaster ride known for its very high and steep plunges. I figured an hour and a half had gone by, so I wandered over to the exit of the ride to see if I could spot them. Sure enough, they were just about to get on, so I went to one of the ride's attendants and explained how I was caring for one of the sick kids and wanted to catch up with the ones who were just about to jump on the ride. He led me through, and I sat right next to one of them who stared at me in utter disbelief. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 72nd episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. biblical detail, historical context that puts you in the action. One of the perks of being a youth pastor is that you can pull off stunts like those, but it might come with some unintended yet humorous consequences like being awarded the title of Chump of the Decade. Our students have reminded me of this story over the years and it still gets a laugh. While they weren't aware that I was caring for one of their friends, they were dumbstruck by the notion that I could get away with such a self-serving move. Chump of the decade. While maybe that move was fairly self-serving, it begs the question of a bigger issue. If we're all self-serving in nature, if we're all deserving of the label, chumps of the decade, then what might happen if we choose to put others first? What might happen if we prioritize the needs of God's kingdom first? So, picking up from last time, we see Paul and Silas miraculously freed from their jail cells. It was truly a God moment, where the jailer was just about to take his own life for fear and shame that comes from not carrying out his duties. What happens with the jailer? What becomes of Paul and Silas? Well, let's listen in and find out. And with that, let's get started. Propping his head through the doorway of Quintus's room, the Doomviri's house servant asks, Did you feel that, sir? Glad to see it wasn't just me, Quintus finally shares. I figured it was the wine. The servant chuckles and says, uh, No, sir. The house is quite a bit more cluttered now than it was just a few moments ago. But don't worry, sir. I'll see to it that things get picked up. Good, Quintus says, as his head collapses back onto his pillow. He groans and finally asks, Did we lose anything of value? Just some vases that fell over, his servant says. By morning, it will be as if nothing happened. Silas looks over at the jailer, gently placing Paul into the water, and says... Paul, maybe I should do this. Paul shudders as the warm water hits the open gashes that striate along the full width of his back. Eventually, he looks back up at Silas and says, Yes, I think you should join me in here. Come on, get in. No, that's not what I meant, Silas says as he gets distracted by the ornate column porches surrounding them. The torchlight reveals steam floating around the pool's surface. He shakes his head and looks back at Paul and continues. I meant that I... Paul looks up from the pool and asks, Are you coming or what? Silas rolls his eyes as he jumps into the heated bath and wades out to where Paul and the jailer are. From the middle of the warm pool waters, the jailer calls out to several family members who stand along the side of the bath. My family, wait there for a moment, he says. He looks over at Paul and Silas next to him and shakes his head in disbelief. He smiles at the men and says, It's been quite an evening. Here I thought I was finally going to get some sleep. The jailer begins to catch himself and continues to replay the evening's events in his mind. An earthquake, the broken shackles, the disassembled footstock, he says, as a tear begins to stream down his cheek yet none of you made a break for it. He fights back the urge to break down. You saved my life tonight. He then looks over at his family. You saved their lives tonight. Your God has shown to be the real God. He proved it over and over tonight, and here I am in these waters to pledge myself to him. He pauses. We are all here to pledge ourselves to him. Peeking their heads out from behind a nearby corner wall, Luke says as he points, "'That's where the holding cell are men.' He then explains, "'Over there are some apartments where the jailer and his crew live.'" Seeing torchlight flicker throughout the windows of the jail, Gaius pulls Luke back behind the corner and whispers to the two other men, "'There's quite a bit of activity going on over there.'" Realizing what Gaius is pointing out, Luke replies, "'Oh, wow, I wasn't even paying attention to that.'" He pats Gaius's back and says, thanks. What do you think is happening? Timothy asks. Gaius quips, whatever the matter might be, it looks like they're in a bit of a panic. Timothy wonders aloud. Maybe they felt the earthquake too. Luke's eyes widen at the idea. He smiles and responds. Maybe they were in the middle of it. The three exchange a knowing glance when Gaius finally speaks up. So, if God has sent the battering ram and wrecked the jail, then where are they now? The jailer grabs two chairs from the kitchen area and says to Silas and Paul, Sit here, take off your outer garments, and let's have a closer look at your wounds. They do as instructed, to reveal the bruising and open sores caused by the multiple blows brought upon them at their hearing. The jailer shares a look of concern with his wife and says well, we need to address these right here. He points to various sores. Let's start with this one. He leans over to Paul, hands him a small stick, and says, this might sting a little. You might want to bite down on this. He then picks up a cup and begins to irrigate the wound. Paul's eyes widen at the onset of the needle-like pain. He quickly places the stick in his mouth and leaves a noticeable imprint with his teeth. As the sharp pain subsides, Paul looks up and asks, What was that you poured over my wound? Vinegar, the jailer says as he pours more onto the other open sores. The baths helped with the dirt, but they can be a problem with infection. Paul winces again and again. After caring for their wounds, the jailer's wife places bread, oil, and fruit on a common plate before Paul and Silas. She teases them. I know you like gnawing on that stick of yours, but I just don't think it's all that tasty. How about some real food? Reaching out for the food placed in front of them, Paul looks up and says, Thank you for your kindness. The jailer's wife teases back. Oh, you're not getting off that easy. I want to hear more about this god of yours. You said that you met him? With an oil lamp in his hand, Quintus opens the door and barks, Tell me exactly what happened. Feeling every bit intimidated by the presence of the veteran Dumviri, who seems to be staring through him, Livia stands at attention and reports, My lord, the earthquake fiercely shook the entire building and everyone in it. It shook so violently that the holding cell doors were unhinged. One particular holding cell door seemed to be tossed aside like a child's toy. Were there any prisoners in the cell? The magistrate asks. "'Uh, yes, sir,' the guard responds. "'There were four. "'Well, did they escape?' Quintus asks. "'What about their stocks? "'Weren't they chained?' "'Well, sir,' Livius responds, that's, "'that's the funny part. "'Even though the door was tossed aside, "'you would think that there wasn't anything to worry about. "'Each prisoner was chained to the wall. Two were even in footstocks.' Well, "'Why is that funny?' Quintus asks, "'while growing impatient. "'The men were freed, sir,' Livius says. "'While shackled, the chains came off the wall for some.' "'Oh!' Okay, so we need to be on the lookout for some of the men with shackles still attached, Quintus says aloud. Not exactly, sir, Livius responds. They are all still accounted for. We've arranged a temporary holding cell until repairs are able to be made. They didn't go anywhere, the Doomveri says with some surprise. No, sir, Livius says. But that's not the crazy part, Quintus says. What do you mean? The two Jews, sir, Livius says. The ones you tried in public just a few days ago. Well, sir, they were completely freed, not only from their chains, but their shackles as well. Not only that, but the footstock was completely disassembled, sir. The eyes of the magistrate widen at this revelation. Theirs was the holding cell with the door completely ripped out, Livius says. I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime, sir. It's as if their gods sent the earthquake to free them. Where are they now? Did they escape? Quintus asks. "'Well, that's just it, my lord,' Livius says. "'My lord, the jailer, fearing that they had escaped, "'was about to take his own life "'when one of the Jews called out to let us know "'that they hadn't tried to escape. "'The jailer is caring for these Jews right now, sir. "'That's why I'm here, my lord. "'The jailer sent me to report to you "'that these men are favored by their god "'and need to be set free.' "'What are you saying, man?' Quintus asks. "'These are good men, sir,' Livius responds. "'Bam, bam, bam!' The knocking on the door continues. Opening his apartment door to a shaft of morning light, the jailer looks out to see three lictors. The larger gruff man shields his eyes against the direct sun and asks, Well, what is it? Seeing the formidable veteran in front of them, one of the lictors speaks in a respectful tone. Sir, we've been instructed to inform you to release two specific men that are in your custody. Which two men? the jailer asks. The Jews, sir, the lictor replies. They are to be released and requested to leave town. Taking this in, the jailer slightly nods his head. I see, he says. Why don't you gentlemen come inside for a moment? Please, follow me. He walks them into another room, where Paul and Silas are seated at a small table. Baffled to see the two men in the jailer's own home, the lictor looks up at the jailer in surprise. Catching the moment, the jailer walks over to Paul and Silas and says... "'Gentlemen, I have good news. "'These men are personal bodyguards of the Doomviri, "'who oversee this town "'and are encouraging you to leave in peace. "'You're free to leave.' "'Silas breathes a sigh of relief "'as he looks over at Paul, "'who doesn't appear to be sharing the same sentiment. "'What is it?' he quietly asks across the table. "'Paul doesn't respond. "'He just processes what has been said. "'Finally, he nods his head and pushes out his chair in an effort to stand. No, he says. The jailer's head goes back a bit at Paul's response. Come again? We were dragged by our limbs into the city center to be tried by two magistrates trying to appease a mob, Paul says plainly. Without an opportunity to share our side, we were then stripped and beaten nearly to death by these Romans. Sir, that was no trial. That was no hearing. That was pure mob driven thuggery. If that wasn't bad enough, we were then thrown into a frigid holding cell filled with human waste, nearly naked, to fight off the vermin and the cold. Then, upon discovering that we've done nothing wrong, they wish to sweep their treatment of us under the rug and shoo us away in secret, as if nothing happened. When do Roman citizens ever deserve that level of treatment? Wait, the jailer responds while looking back at the lictor. You are citizens of Rome? No, we will not simply leave with our tails between our legs, Paul says. Let the magistrates pay us a personal visit. I think a conversation is in order, don't you? You are citizens of Rome, the jailer mutters as he chuckles to himself. We're going to stop here for today. Okay, we didn't see that coming. Well, maybe you did if you happened to read the text in Acts chapter 16, verse 37. Paul finally drops the Roman citizenship card, and to the alarm of those who realize the major problems that come along with such a revelation, this is a game changer in Philippi. Let's quickly flesh out some of the specific perks of Roman citizenship as they relate to Paul and Silas here in Philippi. It's likely that Silas, he also goes by Silvanus, his Roman name, which means out of the forest. Silas was born a citizen of Rome, uh, though we're not exactly sure where. Roman citizenship had some major perks and would serve as a huge benefit to Paul and Silas in their missionary trips throughout the empire. While Roman citizenship afforded different rights to particular people and various classes, wealth, family position, and societal class determined the quality of such citizenship, there were still some pretty important benefits of being a citizen of Rome, no matter your family status. Here's what you could enjoy as a citizen of Rome. First, immunity from some taxes and legal obligations that local non-Roman governments may try to enforce. Second, the right to sue and be sued in the Roman courts. Third, the right to a legal trial and the right to defend oneself. Four, the right to appeal the decisions from a town's magistrate or a lower local court. Five, Romans could not be tortured or whipped. Period. Six. Unless you found guilty of treason, Romans could opt for exile instead of death. Seven. If accused of treason, Roman citizens had the right to be tried in Rome itself. And then eight, if sentenced to death, Roman citizens could not be subject to crucifixion. And as you might imagine, the rights that come with citizenship play a pretty important role in Paul's revelation to the jailer and the lictors, which were the magistrates, special guards, and resident policemen. Which brings us to an important question. Why would Paul wait to drop the bomb of being a Roman citizen? Especially after he had been severely beaten within an inch of his life. He could have been spared all of the hardship that had rained upon him. Which really brings us to our main takeaway today. Kingdom first. Others first makes a kingdom difference. I'll say it again. The kingdom comes first. When we think of others before ourselves, that makes a huge kingdom difference. Jesus said nothing. Paul said nothing. Turning the other cheek in both instances proved to be both inconvenient and painful for Paul and Jesus. Yet, in both cases, God used the circumstances surrounding their public beatings to advance his kingdom. In both Jesus' and Paul's minds, the kingdom came first. They knew that they had the attention of those who came to know them and watched them endure hardship. Their focus on the kingdom was to place the needs of others first. Reconciliation with God was most important, which is what the kingdom is all about. So, getting their own personal needs met, that was secondary. Could this be an exceptional model for getting your point across to an audience that would otherwise be disinterested or unwilling to listen to your message? Paul's willingness to quietly suffer for the kingdom, though quite painful, certainly makes an impact. He didn't seek his rights as a Roman citizenship to spare him from personal pain or hardship. If Paul and Silas had announced their citizenship before the hearing— They would have been released and asked to leave the city. No beatings with rods, which is what a fascist is. No imprisonment. No physical hardship. But Paul chose not to declare his citizenship. And he knowingly suffered for it. Yes, later on he would share that he was a citizen at the most opportune moment. But only after he gained their undivided attention. He used kingdom leverage. He gained an audience that would have otherwise never given him the time of day. Paul set aside his rights as a Roman citizen endured multiple punishing blows so that the kingdom's message would be clearly heard by all who had inflicted pain upon him, as well as those who might have witnessed such moments. The kingdom came first. Furthermore, this isn't the only time that Paul was willing to endure personal hardship, physical hardship, for the sake of the kingdom. Listen to what Paul shares about this out of 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23-30. Speaking of these other teachers in the Corinthian area, he asks, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, but I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, this being one of them. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is also the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Paul and Silas were not concerned about getting their own needs met. They were concerned about the kingdom about humanity being reconciled with God. They even denied wound care and food after starving and rotting away for the past several days so that the jailer and his family could be baptized first. Again, the kingdom came first. Reconciliation with God came first. Again, that's our point, right? When we place others first, that makes a kingdom difference. I want to briefly mention why self-control is such an important component within kingdom thinking. My self-control gives me the capacity to put others first. We know self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, but it it has often caused me to wonder how it all fits in. If I'm not exercising self-control, then how can I be thinking about benefiting others? They don't come to mind because I am all about pleasing myself before anyone else. Galatians 5.16, and then later on the fruit of the Spirit from 22-24, to says it this way, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, the desire to please yourself. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with all of its passions and selfish desires. Exhibiting self-control means that you're taking care of others before you meet your own needs. We're prone to serve ourselves first and foremost. We are prone to being chumps of the decade. Our hunger Our thirst, our appetite for more, for satisfying our personal wants often gets in the way of those who may be suffering around us. And as we walk in the Spirit, that is, we yield to the Spirit's desires for us, we then walk in alignment with the heart of God and the kingdom. It means that we serve others first and ourselves later. It means we put aside our own unwillingness to be inconvenienced and tangibly aim to carry out the love of God. Paul and Silas both understood the need to accomplish kingdom business, even at the expense of their own fundamental needs. More than ever, we seem to be far more concerned about the injustices happening in our nation instead of being used for the life-giving message of the kingdom of heaven. Is it possible that our kingdom messages are being clouded by a fear of being inconvenienced? Do we fear more about what we might stand to lose than showing an interest in populating the kingdom of heaven? I know this is uncomfortable to hear as I need regular reminders telling me that this isn't my fight. My fight is to give voice to the life that comes from Jesus himself. Be reconciled to God, which is a life-giving message of the love and patience of God. For me, this means that my actions, my words, my energies, my giving all need to reflect the importance of demonstrating the love of God in a world that is otherwise trapped in a state of self-interest, chumps of the decade. To wrap this up, Jesus gives it to us straight out. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross, then follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father and with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds i don't suspect that there's going to be too many chumps of the decade in heaven well that's it for this week may you turn the other cheek denying your own personal wants for the sake of the kingdom of heaven may that be my walk too and with that Let's move forward together.